Give a big shout if you know who Tom Lehrer is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, so over there, yes, they couldn't oh, be more excited. Okay, okay. So Tom, Tom, like, Tom Lehrer, in, in my opinion, is the cleverest and funniest man of the 20th century, and I just, he's kind of my hero. And he wrote a song called The Elements, because he was a scientist, and it's basically, it's the name of every element in the periodic table. <laughs> um, and that's, that's my party piece. It's quite long, so do stop me if you just get bored. Okay. But I will, this kept me up last night, I was so nervous about doing this. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and uranium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, ruthenium, vanadium, and anthium, and osmium, and acetine, and radium, and golden protactinium, and dinium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. There's yttrium, terbium, actinium, rubidium, and boron, gadolinium, and opium, and iridium, and sulfur, and silicon, and silver, and barium, and bismuth, bromine, lithium, beryllium, and barium. And let's start the next verse. There's homium and helium. There's homium and helium, and anthium, and erbium, and phosphorus, and thorium, and <laughs> All right, welcome everyone. This is, you know what this is. This is That Record Got Me High, and I'm your host, Rob Elba. And, you know, every week I have a guest on and they talk about a record that got them high. It's pretty simple, actually. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to warn you in advance for anyone that may get triggered. I have a feeling this is going to be a very Jewy episode, a very Jew-centric <laughs> episode. <laughs> so I think. But so if you're triggered by that sort of thing, I just wanted to say that right up front. Uh, I'm, I'm actually, I'm real excited uh, about my guest tonight, uh, so I'm going to just introduce him right away. Let's welcome to the show, Mr. Jeff Greenstein. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Thank you for having me, Rob. Very glad to be here. Oh, Jeff, it's great. And let me tell you, I'm going to tell you a little story, uh, my, my audience. I'm going to tell you guys a little story about Jeff, because Jeff was a, a patron, or is a patron, became a patron of the show, and we do our occasional bonus episodes where the patrons send in, and Jeff started uh, participating, and he would send in, and he would send these great, I mean, they were just so good. It was him introducing a record, and he was so funny and engaging, and, I, and I'm thinking, this guy's great. I, I love this guy. So he, he, he was on a couple episodes, and then I said, oh, I want you to be on the show, and I'm thinking, I'm, he's so good, I'm thinking, I wonder if he's like, if he does like stand-up or something, because he sounds like like it so then i i google him and then i see all right so here's my introduction he is a emmy winning writer of friends will and grace parenthood desperate housewives uh more recently he's directed episodes of mom and the neighborhood so he's like he's like a real co a comedy guy um which i had no idea but um, unless uh, jeff unless i could be totally wrong maybe there's some other jeff greenstein and you're just some schlub there, there actually there is a jeff greenstein who's a noted embezzler oh. and i always have to tell and he is spending his way up the google search page oh, so no. now and he's also bald and vaguely jewy looking oh, so okay. i always have to tell people i'm not the embezzler you're not the embezzler okay that's great yeah. i'm gonna that's how i'm gonna put you in the episode not the embezzler but the uh, Emmy-winning writer, and uh, and yeah, that's great. And do you? So I was wondering, have you actually done stand-up? Did you ever do stand-up before? No, oh, you no, never not did. a performer at all. I'm You're always not. amazed when people think I could be one because the prospect of performing utterly petrifies me. Oh, okay. I, would, I, I I speak through others. That's what I do. Right, but you do a good job of speaking by yourself. I'm just saying. I wouldn't. Thanks. You know, I wouldn't say it. From, I appreciate uh, it. And also, I should mention you are the co-host now of the I Dream of Cameras podcast with uh, right with your yes. other co. Was Gabe Sachs? Is it Sachs? Yes, that's um, right. 
and this is uh, what you guys did is something great. I would I recommend to anyone who wants to start a podcast, pick a subject that that n- that most people don't care about <laughs> and that you're like obsessed with and you want to talk about and that's and and do that because that's perfect and that's what you guys did. I dream of cameras. I've I listened to a couple episodes cuz I knew it, it would be fun. Well, I knew it would be fun just because you guys are both uh, fun guys, so it would be fun. But I have zero interest in cameras or what yeah. the hell. I know nothing of what you guys are talking about. But it, Yeah, it is my, my friend Gabe Sachs, who is also a screenwriter like me, worked on Freaks and Geeks, among other things. He and I discovered a share in, shared interest in film cameras, and so we decided to turn it into a podcast. And as you said, it's extremely niche It is, so, but that's great. It's perfect. And if any, yeah. if you're interested, it's idreamofcameras.com. You can check it out. Yes. And uh, <laughs> yeah, if you're, if you're into cameras, then you're going to be into that for sure. Um, all right, but we're not. So, Jeff, the other thing I could tell just is that you're, besides being a comedy guy, you're a music fan. You're obviously a, a, a big time music fan, right? Yes, very much so. And I was thinking about it in the run up to this episode, which I feel like is going to be kind of an outlier. I, oh, yeah, I don't know sure. if you've done this. Yeah, I, I just want people to know that I listen to real music. <laughs> I do listen to actual, right, you actual do. And, contemporary and I, music. And and when I asked you to be on the show, you actually gave me a list of like a really great, eclectic list of uh, possible records. And then you came up with a great record, which I don't want to say the record you were going to do that you changed because it's great and maybe you can keep it and maybe you come on again you could do that record because it was a great one. But you said, ah, you know, Rob, I was thinking, and this is something that really made... All right, so what, what is the record we are going to talk about tonight? Today we are going to talk about the record More of Tom Lehrer, which is a comedy music album which was released, I think, in like 1959 uh, on Tom Lehrer's own label out of Cambridge, Massachusetts. And... Yes, what else can you say? And, <laughs> yeah, and now, and I will tell you right now why, the reason I accepted it is because it is a music, it is a music record, comedy, because uh, a guest a while ago, someone asked if they could do Steve Martin, um, Let's Get Small. What was the the, the big yeah. album he did, the comedy was, was it Let's Get Small? Is that yeah. it? We're having some fun here at the fabulous boarding house in San Francisco, in California. We've got music, we've got laughter, and wonderful time. You at the boarding house. It's only four dollars every five minutes. You're at the boarding house in San Francisco. But I yeah. said no because this is a music a podcast, and you know, and he, right. he does play some music on it, but it's just oh, like sure, a comedy comedy routine. So no, it just—I mean, not that it's great. I mean, I own that, and I loved that when I was younger. But uh, but this one works because it's it's uh, it's music and it's actual songs. And all right, so so first of all, you—I think we're around the same age. You may be a little old, yes. but this came out in 1959. So I don't think you I was, discovered no. this when this came out. <laughs> But uh, when did you discover Tom uh, Lehrer? Uh, I think it was two discoveries simultaneously. I used to listen to the Dr. Demento show, like oh, all yes. good, like eight, nine, or ten-year-olds. I used Hello, to stay up late and Dr. listen Demento. to it okay. uh, when I shouldn't have been up. Wind up your 
Radio. Westwood One presents the Dr. Demento Show. And I remember hearing some of these songs on the Dr. Demento Show, and the name Tom Lehrer kind of stuck in my mind. And I was rifling through my parents' record collection, and it turned out that my dad was also a huge fan of Tom Lehrer, and he had his first two records. Really? And so, yeah, so I recorded them to cassette, and I would listen to them, like, obsessively. And that is how I became a fan of Tom Lehrer. He, as you know, only released three or four records during his career, and so I became completely obsessed with these songs and this music. Knew nothing about the musician. Just thought they were incredibly funny. They were funny, and they hit... I mean, so how old were you? When you when you discovered and you transferred it, like, how old were you then? I mean, I think like... when the fixation really took hold, I was like 12, 13, 14 yeah, years old. That's it. See, that's the sweet spot for kids. You, you know what it is? Because you listen to someone and he's being a wise-ass about things. And yes. you want... And and it's like that's so attractive, you know, just for someone that, oh, shit, he's saying this shit. And you could tell he's just being a real wise ass, you know, and saying, you know, and, and that's like that's like a catnip to a certain type of young man. Rob, you nailed it. That is totally true. That is like this was something to aspire to, to have this kind of, you know, linguistic facility, to have the vocabulary, the musical acumen, like everything that he brings to this was so aspirational for me. I want to be that witty right you know right. and and i want to be that facile you know yeah. and and also just that kind of slashingly satirical you know i wrote a paper in high school right around this time on the art of satire and i think the reason i got interested in satirical writing and satirical music tom Lehrer was one of the key ways into that Right. And um and for, for people who don't know, I guess you could compare some of his work to like a much milder a Phil Ox or especially Randy Newman, which I'm thinking you you have to be a Randy Newman fan as well, right? Yeah. You know, to be honest, I never got hard into Randy Newman oh, because okay. I just don't know if the music, you know, it's that New Orleans style barrel house piano R and B right. thing that underpins everything he does. And I remember I worshipped the Rolling Stone record guide. Did you ever have this, Rob? Oh, yeah, the, the orange Stone cover with the orange guide. cover. Uh, yep, exactly. And I remember seeing that Randy Newman's Sail Away was a five-star record in the Rolling Stone record guide, and so I somehow contrived to get a copy of Sail Away. And it just was not... <laughs> it just did not touch me the way Tom Lehrer did. I think maybe because he was playing a character. You know, when he's, he does, yes, ta- when he's right. singing Sail Away, he's playing the character of a man on a slave ship. In America, you get food to eat. Won't have to run through the jungle and scuff up your feet. You just sing about Jesus and drink wine all day. It's great to be an American. Oh, yeah. Right? right. And it's somehow... That was a little too advanced for me. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, you were probably. You know too, what I mean? Yep, yeah, I, I know exactly. I got into writing character comedy later. Yep. But you know the 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 disciples of Tom Lehrer, I would say, are people like Bo Burnham. I mean, Bo Burnham cites Tom Lehrer as a huge, huge influence, and I think for people who are fans of Bo Burnham's comedy and his song parodies, you can trace the lineage back to Tom Lehrer right, in a big right. way. The dirt road, the cold beer. A blue jeans, a red pickup, a rural noun, simple adjective. No shoes, no shirt, 
No Jews, you didn't hear that. Um, yeah, sort of and a and, um, and and actually, his it's funny because in, you you sent me a clip of the um, Harry Potter kid. I, what's his name? Yeah, right? Daniel Radcliffe. Daniel Radcliffe. Yeah, doing the uh, doing one of his songs, and his songs have actually shown up on a bunch of. It's been on uh, a Big Bang Theory. And yeah. Um, yeah, what other show? Oh, it was most recently it was on Better Call Saul. Uh, uh, oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, golden protactinium, and indium, and gallium. That uh, they use the um, elements song. The, uh, oh, the, the elements. Guy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the creator of Big Bang Theory, uh, Bill Prady, is. Uh, friend of mine we actually came up in the business at the same time and we had been threatening for years to make a pilgrimage to santa cruz to meet tom lehrer who by the way turns 94 he's in still, about three right, weeks i saw that he's, yeah, he's still, still alive in yeah, reading about, okay yeah. so let's talk about him a little because obviously he is a brilliant brilliant man he went to he, he went to harvard he got accepted in harvard at 15 yeah. Uh, so he was a, a bit of a child prodigy. He became he, he was a mathematics undergraduate student at Harvard College. And then he began began to write these like comic songs to like entertain his friends. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, his name, Tom Lear, like I'm thinking when I'm listening to it, I'm thinking this guy has to be Jewish. But I'm saying that's not really a Jewy name. So I did what I always do. Uh, I don't know if you do this, but there's a site called uh, Jew or Not Jew. It's Jew or Not Jew.com. <laughs> and, you, and you put in the, someone's name and it tells you if they're a Jew. And he is a Jew. <laughs> you know, I honestly, Rob, I did not know that until I was doing research for this. And right. I was listening to an interview with him in which he said, you know, culturally, I guess he grew up. Jewish right. originally exactly. in New York yeah. City. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, there is a line in one of his songs, which we're actually not going to hear today, but there's a song called uh, National Brotherhood. Week, oh, that, that, was the fir- taught, that right. was the first song by him I ever heard. And there is a line in that song where it says, you know, the, the poor folks hate the rich folks. And the punchline on the stanza is, and everybody hates the Jews. Yeah. And I thought, <laughs> would a Jewish guy really say that? Well, and so I wasn't only a Jewish guy. Sure. When you think about it, only a I Jewish know. guy can say that. <laughs> exactly. Now I know that. Now I know that. But as a kid, I just wasn't entirely sure. As a kid, as the one right, Jewish right, kid right. in the Episcopalian private school I went to, I was not entirely sure about that. Right. Okay. So you came at it. You just loved the. Uh, it, it just it, it, his humor and and his. Uh, just um it just like i said the lyrics it, it it's so clever uh the way he puts yeah. the, the songs together and the way he words it, it, it it's done so uh it it, it it it's just great and uh and probably i i think i heard a uh, poisoning pigeon the first song poisoning pigeons in the park i think uh, dr demento must have played that cuz i feel like i heard sure. that on uh, yeah, uh, dr yeah the songs demento. that you would hear most often on dr demento are actually at the beginning and end of this record, Poisoning Pigeons in the Park, The Masochism Tango. I remember hearing that on Dr. Demento. And of course, The Elements, which in a lot of ways has been probably his most enduring song, even though he didn't write the music. Right, but right, right. I think what really struck me, and it's interesting, I was listening to an interview with Lehrer where he talks about this, the wordplay. He clearly loves language. He loves breaking a word in the middle you know, internal oh, rhyme. Oh, he's so good at and, that. So good at that. And so facile. And he talks about how something he learned from Stephen Sondheim, who I guess was one of his musical idols, was that that sort of lyrical cleverness is what brings you back to a funny song. 
You know, it's not enough for the song to be about something funny, that the song itself needs to be constructed in a really entertaining way. That's what makes it sticky. Right. You know, and uh, I right. think that's else, one of the reasons uh, yeah. these songs or endure. It, yeah, or else it's it's just a novelty song, some novelty song you hear, oh, that's funny, but exactly. you, you aren't going to return to it again. Right, yeah. There has right, more, but I think the, the wordplay, yeah, the wordplay, the nimbleness is stuff, that's what makes these songs, I mean, I've been enjoying these songs now for 14, 15 years, and I think it is because of just the, the wordplay and the, the verbal facility that is showcased. Yep. I learned words from these songs. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure, yeah. Uh, definitely, um, and uh, so I, in reading about him, before we get into songs, I saw that he, he pretty much gave up songwriting and performing in the 70s, uh, you know, and then he was like, uh, he was a, a professor and, uh, but he commented, uh, he, he commented that uh, a political, he felt like political satire had become obsolete. And he had a great quote I saw in 2002. He said, things I once thought were funny are scary now. I often feel like a resident of Pompeii who has been asked for some humorous com- comments on <laughs> lava. <laughs> yeah you know when you listen to him recount the arc of his career he seems like a guy who as you said did this kind of as a lark to like entertain guys in the army or entertain guys in his dorm room right you know and then it improbably became something where people wanted to hear the songs and he would go out and perform them and perfect them and then became one of the first independent recording artists in pressing up his own records and so forth. But he seems like he always had a profoundly ambivalent relationship with performing. And he said he would, you know, he said that there was a time he was performing for quite a large audience and he found himself thinking about his dinner order, you know, <laughs> right, right, just kind of checked out. And right. I know musicians who have talked about this, about how difficult it is when you're performing the same songs over and over to really be present and really be engaged. Right. The other thing he said was that he doesn't need adulation from strangers, which I know is something we really cannot relate to at all these days. I know, right? Yeah. (laughs) But he just felt like there was no need to do it. Like he said, I want to make the perfect version of the song, record it, and then ship it. I don't need to go out and do the song over and over again. I know, again. you almost feel like some of it, he's just doing it for himself, just because he he's yeah. so good at it and he knows he can do it. And he's like, I'm going to write this crazy song. And he writes it, and then that's it. He's done. And I think, you know, Rob, I think that comes across because... You know, I always say when talking about television development, for example, no one was asking for Breaking Bad. Like, one of the greatest shows of the last 25 years, no one was saying, you know what we want? Right. We want a show about a 50-something white man who turns to manufacturing. No one was asking for that. And I think in a lot of ways, Tom Lehrer is creating and performing for an audience of one. He is doing the stuff that he finds funny. He's talking about the things he finds entertaining. And I think the specificity and idiosyncrasies that are all over this record show in that. It's my favorite kind of comedy is people who are not really thinking about, I'm going to become a big star. Right, I'm going right, to reach right. a huge audience. It's about, I want to do something that the weirdos might get. Weirdos like me right, oh, might yeah. get. <laughs> and I have found over the arc of my career, the weirder and more specific and stranger and like the nobody will get this joke in the writer's room, that's the one people remember. 
that's the, the one winner. That people yeah, quote that's back the to one you. that's going to yeah. stand the test of time. Yep, that totally makes yeah. sense. And uh, we should mention one more thing. This was his studio, second studio album, but he also, there's a live album, An Evening Wasted with Tom Lehrer, with the yes. exact same songs, the exact same order. So it's yes. like they had that. And then, so I guess this album was out of print for a while because then uh, they had that album. Uh, and until it was, but you had your, your dad had this one, right? The, the studio yes, one. He okay, had this good. one. And then I also had an evening wasted with Tom Lear, which as you said, basically the same exact songs performed with the exact same affect. Yeah. yeah, uh, right, Live. Right. I mean the same, it's remarkable how yeah. he just nails some very complicated piano parts and vocal parts and stuff and just has them cold. You have the benefit of, on an evening wasted of hearing the audience reaction, which is fun, right. and hearing some of his intros and outros, which are also fun. Yeah, they are. And they are. I think he said, you know, that when, you know, that he put out the live one and the studio one kind of simultaneously, and they sold in exactly equal numbers. Isn't like that, yeah, <laughs> people great. didn't seem to really perform prefer one over the other. Right. All right. So let's hear uh, the first song. The first song sort of grabs you right away. Either you're going to love it, you're going to hate it, you're going to say, "What the." <laughs> fuck is that especially in night i kept thinking about when this came out in 1959 and it's like wow all right let's listen to poisoning pigeons in the park spring is here a suffering is here life is skittles and life is beer i think the loveliest time of the year is the spring i do don't you of course you do. But there's one thing that makes spring complete for me and makes every Sunday a treat for me. All the world seems in tune on a spring afternoon when we're poisoning pigeons in the park. Every Sunday you'll see my sweetheart and me as we poison the pigeons in the park. When they see us coming, the birdies all try and hide, but they still go for peanuts. When <laughs> so when you found out that your dad had this album, he loved this. Were you worried at all like about your dad, <laughs> like that your dad would like this? My dad had a fantastic sense of humor. And he was a great rock on tour. Oh, okay. And nice. he had been in a fraternity at Georgia Tech. It was not a surprise to me at all that this was his sense of humor. Oh, and okay, good. That he had that he liked kind of wickedly funny stuff like this. Right. And also, you know, I mean, you faded out just before like one of my favorite bits of verbal gymnastics on this. He rhymes when they see us coming, the birdies all try and hide, but they still go for peanuts when coated with cyanide. Oh, I know. I mean, he that did is... the rhyme. What a great rhyme. I mean, it's like, yeah, That's he does. fantastic. And of course, the, <laughs> the other thing you hear at the top is, first of all, he's a master of the song form. He's found a way to sort of put you in this, you know, it's very much in the pop song tradition of the 50s. Like, he sings a lot like Rudy Valley, who I know was a generation earlier, but he's got that kind of, you know, singing into the megaphone kind of voice. Right, right, And he's right. singing about a lovely spring day, and he's with his sweetheart, and of course it takes this unbelievably dark turn. Well, the, the instead way Instead of having a picnic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The way he, he sells everything, just, it, 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 it adds to everything so much, because, uh, yeah, yes. he sells it. And, and for me... The song is extra dark because the narrator never explains why he's poisoning pigeons. <laughs> you know, just to be, but you no. know he's going to keep doing it. 
Yeah, and Lehrer explained it in an interview once. You know, somebody asked him why he chose, and he said, "I really hate pigeons." He hates <laughs> pigeons. Yeah, right. Which I had. A you feeling. know, and he said, "If I had done a song about poisoning dogs, it probably would not have been popular." I don't like dogs either. He said, "But right, oh yeah, exactly." <laughs> pigeons but were pigeon, a better everyone target. Could kind of get on board. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's alliterative, you know. Oh yeah, poisoning yeah. pigeons in the park. You know? Exactly. Yeah. And one one thing I wanted to ask you about this, he mentions uh, Skittles. Life is Skittles and life is beer. And I'm thinking, Skittles? What the fuck? Skittles weren't around then. I, I looked it up. Skittles is a uh, historical game. lawn game. Yeah, lawn game and yeah. target sport of a uh, European It's origin. like bowling so. with little wooden pins. Okay, right. Okay. so that- <laughs> But contemporary audiences will think he's having candy with exactly. his beloved. Yeah, well, right? well I'm an idiot. That's Skittles and beer, thought. though. I don't know that that necessarily goes together. Okay, so let's get, uh, obviously, he spent uh, started college. Uh, as a young man, very young man, uh, so he's. This is sort of his little send up, pretty mild send up of, of college life, spoof of college life. Uh, let's listen to Bright College Days. Bright college days, oh carefree days that fly. To thee we sing with our glasses raised on high. Let's drink a toast as each of us recalls ivy-covered professors in ivy-covered halls. Turn on the spigot, pour the beer and swig it, and Gaudiamusi get a tour. Here's two parties we tossed to the games that we lost. We shall claim that we won them someday. To the girls, young and sweet, to the spacious back seat of our roommates, beat up Chevrolet. To the beer and Benzedrine, to the way that the dean. <laughs> so, what I got out of this was college life hasn't changed that much. It's mainly no. drinking, yeah, drinking and taking. Uh, now, I don't know if this came up in your research, Rob, but Tom Lehrer is the inventor of the Jello shot. I saw that. Yeah, that's a bunker. Yeah, that's come on. Well, right, that's pretty amazing. It and he amazing, invented yeah. it while in his dorm at Harvard. He came up with the idea for the Jello shot. He experimented with different alcohols. Right. Discovered that vodka, I guess, vodka and orange jello, that was the original jello shot. Yeah. But this is, I think, this follows on one of the first songs he ever written, one of the first songs he ever wrote, which was on his first album called Fight Fiercely Harvard, which is another sort of send up of the college, in that case, the college fight song. Oh, okay. And you hear once again how just from those opening chords, he is very much putting you in the mood of like, you know, pomp and circumstance. Oh, you know, yeah. The right, kind of song right, right, that you yeah. would solemnly sing. And we take this kind of for granted because these parodies are so agile. But like we see over the course of this record, this guy effortlessly moving between like a swingy little pop song like Poisoning Pigeons in the Park and then all of a sudden being able to play this very majestic, solemn kind of mode. Yes. And yeah. His ability to code switch like that is really remarkable, and you hear it on every single song. Well, yeah, you could tell he was, whatever was going on, he was keyed into everything that was going on then, and, and whatever style of, uh, different styles of music, which we'll see for sure, and he was definitely dialed in, uh, you know, to all that. I guess uh, pop culture, I don't know if they called it a uh, pop culture then, but whatever uh, pop yeah. culture was, he was definitely tuned the, in. Uh, the other thing, you know, in terms of my own personal history with this record, uh, at my college, Tufts University, Medford, Massachusetts, there was an a cappella singing group called the Beelzebubs. I actually, this, I know, I know that's already embarrassing. It gets more embarrassing, Rob. So I 
in addition to this record teaching me about comedy, it probably taught me to sing because I sang along with all of these songs. I know every word, every syllable on this record. And so I auditioned for the Beelzebubs my freshman year with that song, Bright College Days. And they liked me. They had me back for a callback, but they said, can you sing a more contemporary song? So I did The Angels Want to Wear My Red Shoes by Elvis Costello. Right. And then I got cut. (laughs) Jeff, I'm going to just say you uh, dodged a bullet with that. (laughs) Exactly. I I really am going to say that. I completely agree with you. Yeah, you definitely rejected by an acapella singing group is a point of pride. (laughs) And probably, probably, it was hard enough meeting girls. It would have been a lot harder. I know. I thought you were, I I was afraid you were going to tell me you were like a member of them for four years. I was going to like, and probably end the episode early. So uh, (laughs) it's good that you uh, didn't say that. No. As a matter of fact, I just want to throw this in. I was in Boston at an uncommonly great time for music. There was The Cars were happening. Amy Mann won the Battle of the Bands with her band uh, Till Tuesday. Uh, Human Sexual Response. uh, La Peste. There were a lot of great DMZ. There were a lot of The Real Kids. It was a great time in Boston music. So I just want to say, like, Tracy Chapman was a classmate of mine. Really? Yeah, I produced one of Tracy's first public concerts oh, wow. at, when I was at Tufts. Yeah, oh, that's awesome. So, yeah. So anyway, I wasn't just hanging out with the acapella kids. Is yeah, what I'm trying God. to impress upon you. Thank God. I'm 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 glad you brought it up though. That's a good one. Uh, <laughs> all right. So a Christmas Carol uh, again. You know, a sort of a satirization of the banality and commerciality of the Christmas holidays. I uh, let's let's listen to it a little, and then I'll give you my thoughts on it. Because of course, okay. as as Jewish kids, we have our own ideas about Christmas, right? So let's listen <laughs> yes. to a Christmas Carol. Christmas time is here, by golly, disapproval would be folly. Deck the halls with hunks of holly, fill the cup and don't say when. Kill the turkeys, ducks, and chickens, mix the punch, drag out the dickens. Even though the prospect sickens, brother, here we go again. On Christmas Day you can't get sore, your fellow man you must adore. There's time to rob him all the more, the other three hundred and a six, a D, a four. Relations sparing no expensel, send some useless old utensil, or a matching pen and pencil, just the thing I need. How nice. How nice. <laughs> That's good. Now, I will say, I wish when I was a kid, like when I was a 12-year-old kid or something, I had this song to hear this song. Yeah. Because I, yeah. I don't know about you, but I always thought Christmas was stupid and pointless when I was young because I was uh, jealous of all the kids that got to celebrate Christmas. Yeah. You know, I didn't get to celebrate Absolutely. Christmas. Yeah. I mean, as I said, I was one of very few Jewish kids at the Episcopalian private school in suburban Atlanta. Uh, and Atlanta? Would, so, yeah, were I, there even to, any other Jews in Atlanta then? You know, there were there were few. They kept us all in the northeastern part of the city so they oh, could okay. keep their eyes on us. Smart, smart. But um, uh, I always tell people, by the way, driving Miss Daisy. Miss Daisy's a Jewish woman, by the way. Oh, Go really? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, uh, so I always felt that kind of simmering resentment toward Christmas as well. Right, and it was right, nice right. to see. But particularly what he's satirizing here is the incredible commercialization of the holiday. Yes, yes. And... Of course, this was something that Charles Schultz, one of my other comedic heroes, would talk about in uh, the very first Peanuts special, the Charlie Brown Christmas. Oh, was all I about. love that. Now, I used to love that. I watched a Jewish kid. Same. I watched that every year. I would watch that. I love yeah. that. Yeah. 
And I liked that, you know, he was kind of taking the piss here and like, you know, saying, is this holiday about anything other than advertisers and commerce and stuff? Does anyone remember what it's actually about? And of course, a couple of years later, that's exactly what Charles Schultz was talking about. Well, it's a good thing today he would be accused of waging a war on Christmas. and A war on Christmas, exactly. uh, (laughs) (laughs) All right, so this next song, the... Oh, I'm so excited. Elements. Yeah, this is so basically (laughs) the song recites the names of all the chemical elements known at the time. So up to 102, which I look, there are 16 more now. (laughs) Yes, that's right. Yes. Um, You'd have to add a whole verse for it. Yes. But yeah, this one, like I like I said, this showed up. uh, It's been in the Big Bang Theory, uh, Gilmore Girls. Uh, and uh, better, better Call Saul most recently. Yeah. Um, so the music is what? Is from what? Um, it's from Pirates of Penzance by Gilbert and Sullivan, and it's the Major General song, I Am the Very Model of a Modern Major General, okay. which I think audiences in the late 50s would have recognized as, you know, as Gilbert and Sullivan. I did not know until much later oh, yeah, right. no, that that was know? the music. There's no reason I would have known Gilbert and Sullivan. No. Um, but I just thought, again, talk about the verbal dexterity that it takes to make all these things rhyme and to make like the meter of each line is perfect. The way in which he kind of slides these all in and makes it poetry. It makes it actually memorizable. I and both of my younger brothers can sing this song. Did you? Because I saw uh, Daniel Rad, like you said, uh, Daniel Radcliffe did it on on, on a show and he did it and he was really mad. He was like starting to flub it and they stopped him and he's like, no, don't stop me. I want to finish it. And he finished it. Uh, You could tell he really uh, meant a lot to him. I sang this for a summer camp talent show. Did you? And really in Probably in every writer's room I've ever been in. Yeah, it's really embarrassing. But once it's yeah, in there, well, you can't get rid of it. No, I'm you know? sure it's great. I'm going to guess you uh, uh, you didn't get laid that year that you did it. But, you know, it's a wild guess. But, you know. <laughs> all right. Uh, so, but it's a masterpiece. It's a masterpiece. It and probably, if you know Tom Lehrer at all, even the most like glancing acquaintance with Tom Lehrer, it's because of this song. Yeah. Let's listen to a little bit of The Elements. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. There's yttrium, ytterbium, actinium, rubidium, and boron, gadolinium, niobium, iridium, and strontium, and silicon, and silver, and samarium, and bismuth, bromine, lithium, beryllium, and barium. Did you see me mouthing along with it? Yeah, yeah, I did. He was mouthing along to it. Um, Yeah, it's great. And you know what? He's really good. He even throws in, he uh, he throws in, uh, when he's playing the piano, he'll throw in these little notes that are like a a little flat, sometimes sharp, but you could tell he's doing it on purpose. And it's like a a wink, you know, like like a little musical wink that he does. Yeah, it's a little nod to the audience. Like we both know. You know, like yeah, what it's supposed exactly. to sound like. Yeah, exactly. That I'm like. playing this very pretty sounding song, but it's also a little, yeah, it, it's it's a yeah. little skewed. And and also, how smart is he? Because at the end, he said these are the only ones of which the news has come to Harvard, uh, and there may be many others, but they haven't been discovered. So he, <laughs> he knew there was going to be more to be discovered later on. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. But just I don't know. I remember just it just blew my mind. California. 
the poetry of the final couplet, like when he says argon, krypton, neon, radon, xenon, zinc, and rhodium, chlorine, carbon, cobalt, copper, tungsten, tin, and sodium. Like, that's amazing. That's amazing to me. It's amazing. Like, just the alliteration, the rhyme, the, I just, oh, it's so exciting to me. If it wasn't so well written and well done, you wouldn't have it in your head still this many years right. later you exactly. wouldn't remember it so yeah that's yeah that's something that actors tell me about good dialogue good dialogue that sounds authentic that sounds like human speech is easy to memorize oh, right it's the stuff sense. that's not well written that's hard to memorize uh-huh. um oh so uh, i guess that's bad though because if you have an actor that's not uh that's having trouble with their lines they could always say well if it was yes. written better you know? write it better <laughs> yes <laughs> exactly do right. a better job so Oedipus Rex, uh, this is the <sighs> mythical Greek king, uh, Oedipus, who fled his parents in fear of a prophecy that he would one day uh, murder his father and marry his mother. It, it, it was like a soap opera because later he discovered that he was adopted and he fulfilled the prophecy by slaying his true father in an argument right. and marrying his mother, Jocasta. But for, for Jewish boys, this has like a little thing too, right? Because Jewish boys, well, we have like a love we all love relationship We love our mothers. Moms. We love we our love mothers. mothers. Yeah, so... <laughs> And he is taking off that. He's saying, you know, basically love your mother, but not too much. Exactly, <laughs> which is great. The, the words are really great, brilliant. Let's listen to a little bit of Oedipus Rex. From the Bible to the popular song, there's one theme that we find right along. Of all ideals they hail as good, the most sublime is motherhood. There was a man, though, who it seems once carried this ideal to extremes. He loved his mother and she loved him, and yet his story is rather grim. There once lived a man named Oedipus Rex. You may have heard about his odd complex. His name appears in Freud's index, cause he loved his mother. His rivals used to say quite a bit that as a monarch he was so most loved his mother. But yeah, what does he, loved he his what does he say right at the end? Though? It's so good. Uh, so be sweet and kind to mother now and then. Have a chat. Buy her candy or some flowers or a brand new hat. But maybe you had better let it go at that. <laughs> right. And then he says, or you may find yourself with a quite complex complex. There you go. Uh, yeah. so, <laughs> which so, is brilliant. Is you brilliant. know, the other thing that this is taking off of. You know, when you think about the time in which this was. Uh, released, right? Freud and psychology, these are still relatively fresh ideas oh, right, that are right, ripe right, for yeah. satire. So when he talks about his name appears in Freud's index, like that was a sexy and controversial thing to talk about in the yep, 50s yep. was psychology. Yeah. So to take like this ultimate like psychological damage case and turn it into a subject of a song is great. And the fact that he does it ragtime, that's the other brilliant thing is that he has that lyrical opening, but then he goes into this sort of peppy song about a guy who was committing this horrific sin. Yeah, exactly. And and you know, one thing I, I I have to say with a lot of this, and it sounds I don't know, it sounds bad elitist to say it, but you have to have a certain intelligence to appreciate this and it's been then too i'm sure you had it you know you just have to have a certain sophistication to your humor to be able to get this or else you just be 
horrified by whatever it is he's doing and you wouldn't get it yeah, at all. I, I think also, you know, this is this is a good lesson in comedy is to never talk down to your audience, always talk up to them. Right. You know, I think like one of the things when people watched, for example, Frasier, Frasier was a show that made people feel smart. You may not get all the references, but you feel that the people in it are intelligent. Right. And maybe it encourages you to seek out the novel or the opera or the, you know, the classical piece that they're talking about. Yeah. And Woody Allen at the, you know, again, another of my three principal comedic influences, Woody Allen did the same thing. I think half the people who heard the reference in Annie Hall to Balzac did not know that Balzac was a novelist, and but they would laugh at the joke because of the rhythm of the joke. It makes you feel smart. Right, it makes you yeah. feel part of a secret club That's to true. get references like that. And I think that, again, Tom Lehrer, I'm sure a lot of the people in the crowd are laughing because everyone else is laughing because it sounds like a punchline, but they go along for the ride. It makes you feel smarter for having listened to it. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Because even now, some of his references, he says, I still don't get all of the references yeah. that he's throwing out there, or, or yes. I would have to look it up. At least now we could go on our phones and Google it. You know, you couldn't do that. That's thing. right. Uh, all right, so it's, it's interesting you mentioned Woody Allen because – uh, a problem. The next, there's a couple of things in here that are a little problematic, and this next. Here's one. one. <laughs> Here's one. Yes. And you know that's just the way it is. You know, I, I, I always, I've said this before. I, you know, when people say, "Oh, you can't joke about stuff," you can't. Well, you know, sorry, that's how it goes. We sort of evolve as people, and some things that used to be okay to say, maybe, or maybe it wasn't even that okay to say, but it was more accepted. Now you, you just can't. You're not going to get away with it. So that's the way I it think is. It's, <laughs> yeah, I think it speaks well of Tom Lehrer that it is only in the last stanza of this song exactly. that there is one particular reference that really is kind of ugly. It is. And, and it, it speaks yet. well of Tom also that when he went back to rewrite the song for a musical production called Tom Foolery that he did in the 80s, it was a review with songs by Tom Lehrer. It was produced by Cameron McIntosh. Right. He rewrote it. Oh, good. He rewrote okay. those lines right. with something actually that I think is a little bit funnier. Oh, um, that's but he good. rewrote so that's that couplet. Because, so he didn't go, yeah, he wasn't an asshole and go, screw you, I'm keeping it in. <laughs> no, no. He was <laughs> right. like, you know what, that that particular language is inappropriate now, and yeah. I'm funny enough that I can write something else. That's the thing, right? That's the thing that I always sell. Think of something else. But, be, be clever. Be more clever. Exactly. But yeah. I think it speaks well of him that it is among alone among these 11 songs. I think it is. And by the way, the song is not about ethnicity. The song is about how horrific it is to kill animals at a bullfight. Right, because it's right? basically a, a gringo, this gringo, and their impressions going to Mexico, and yeah. And then right. Yeah, it's a, not a making fun of Mexicans, but no, there no, is this not. one epithet at the end exactly. that it's the only kind of blot on an otherwise perfect record. It is. Alright, let's listen to a little bit of in, and, and we thankfully won't get to the last stanza. Let's listen to right. In Old Mexico. <laughs> Fiesta time in Guadalajara. Then I long to be back once again in old Mexico, where we lived for today, never giving a thought to tomorrow. The strumming of guitars in a hundred grubby bars, I would whisper, Te amo. The Maria 
Apaches would serenade And they would not shut up till they were paid We ate, we drank, and we were merry And we got typhoid and dysentery Oh, but best of all, we went to the Plaza de Toros Now whenever I start feeling morose I revive by recalling that scene <laughs> just his vocabulary that he uses yeah. you know and he, he he gets these like crazy rhymes you know it's it's really it's yeah so well done. rhyming monolete was one of the great bullfighters of the era so, and so he reels off three great bullfighters belmonte dominguin and manolete and he says <laughs> if i live to 180 i will never forget what they mean right. i mean it's just it's just, it's showing off that's what i love and you hear how agile a piano player he is. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. he instantly can kind of move between these different modes and play a completely credible kind of Mexican style ballad with all of this pep and intrigue and so forth. As yeah, it's just it's really remarkable. Like we take it for granted, but every song has a slightly different idiom, and he has a, he's a master of all of them. Yeah, yeah, and you could tell he was a super, really great musician, but uh, yeah. I think that's all part because uh, uh, especially piano can be very math, like someone that's very good in math... Uh mathematical they can be yeah, a, good point. a great uh, piano player and um you could tell he's probably one of these guys that probably could have done just about anything he wanted yeah to, he's probably really smart. yeah um all right so clementine is a pretty it, it's a pretty clever parody of uh, the folk song oh my darling clementine which he admits that he can't stand he you know he hates it that it's such a hokey song and uh, how it would have uh, tr- turned out if written by different uh, composers and different styles of music. Right. And and a lot of this goes kind of over my head because he's doing it in the style of Cole Porter and Mozart and uh, like a jazz, which I guess the jazz one is Thelonious Monk. It's kind of like a Thelonious Monk. Yeah, thing, exactly. Which is not anything it's I very cool jazz. Yeah, cool yeah. jazz. Ba-da, so, ba-da, 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 ba-da. Yeah, that so kind of. that's what we were saying before that he was kind of, he, he like knew about all different kinds of music and he, he could yeah, just. Yeah, and clearly throw was it out. just. Really, one of the things that comes across when you hear him interviewed, and it's very obvious from the records themselves, is this guy passionately loves music. Yes. As a matter of fact, you know, he, when he left uh, Harvard, he was in the army for a couple of years, which we'll feature in a song we'll get to in a minute. But uh, he came back and he basically decided that for the rest of his life, he wanted to be a perpetual student. And he spent all of his time teaching graduate school. And when they finally threw him off the Harvard campus, because they said, you cannot keep teaching graduate classes unless you get a PhD, he went to Santa Cruz and did the same thing. (laughs) And in Santa Cruz, he taught courses in mathematics, but he also taught courses in musical theater. Oh, really? And so, yeah. And so I, you know, people talk about like how great it would have been to have him as your math professor. Imagine having this guy teaching you about the popular song. Right. I just think he's so well-versed. And Clementine, which you're about to play, is just him showing off his knowledge of all of these musical idioms. As you said, jazz, opera, you know, it's really quite impressive. It is. All right, let's let's do a little bit. I should like to expound briefly on a theory I have held for some time to the effect that the reason most folk songs are so atrocious is that they were written by the people. And if professional songwriters had written them instead, things might have turned out considerably differently. For example, consider the old favorite Clementine, you know. In a cavern, in a canyon, da-da-da-da-da-da. A song with no recognizable merit whatsoever. And imagine what might have happened if, for example, 
Cole Porter had tried writing this song, the first verse might have come out like this. In a cavern, in a canyon, excavating for a mine far away from the boom, boom, boom of the city. She was so pretty, what a pity, Clementine. Oh, Clementine, can't you tell from the howls of me? This love of mine calls to you from the bowels of me. Are you discerning the returning of this churning, burning, yearning for you? supposing at this point that Mozart or one of that crowd had tried writing a verse the next one might have come out as a baritone aria from an Italian opera somewhat along these lines <clears throat> fake Italian Oh, yes. one of that crowd. <laughs> oh, one of that crowd. And it's all fake Italian, you know? Oh, it's it, like, yeah, it's all fake. Right, it's right, like, right. it's all syllables that sound very Italian. <laughs> he keeps saying, herring boxes, senza topsies. Like, none of it is actual Italian words. Right. Uh, yeah, but it's great. And like you said, it does show that he's just, uh, how much he just loves music and all kind of music. And it is, you're right. He's just showing off because he could, he's just throwing yeah. out this little uh, uh, classical sounding aria like it's nothing, you know? Yeah. Um, all right, so the next one, so uh, like you said, he was drafted into the Army from 1955 to 57, and he was just an enlisted, well, he was an enlisted soldier, but he ended up working yeah, yeah. for the NSA, the National Security Agency, probably because they realized- Right, which he was he not able to reveal degree. until many years later, apparently. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. So, so this isn't anything, I, it's not an indictment against the Army or anything, which I guess he did later in the 60s. He did more sort of like a protest song, but this is just kind of like about like the various people who would, you know, the reasons they would join the Army and enlist in the Army. Yes. Uh, something like that. And it's, uh, it makes a fellow proud to be a soldier. The heart of every man in our platoon must swell with pride For the nation's youth, the cream of which is marching at his side For the fascinating rules and regulations that we share And the quaint and curious costumes that we're called upon to wear Now Al joined up to do his part defending you and me he wants to fight and bleed and kill and die for liberty. With the hell of war, he's come to grips, policing up the filter tips. It makes a fella proud to be a soldier. When Pete was only in the seventh grade, he stabbed a cop. He's real RA material, and he was glad to swap his switchblade and his old zip gun for a bayonet and a new M1. It makes a fella proud to be a soldier. After Johnny got through basic training, he... So um, let me ask you, because I'm curious, your dad, you said this was your dad's record. That 
that's cool. That's really cool. Like, would you, you and your dad, like, sort of bond over this? Or would you listen and go there? Because, honestly, I can't picture, if I listened to this, my parents would not be into this. Oh, all. it's, my father was really, you know, he grew up listening to, like, the Four Freshmen and the Letterman and a lot of the music that was played on the 8-track in the car when I was growing up was Neil Diamond and Barbara Streisand and stuff. Right. But later in life, like, when I got into... Uh, like Talking Heads and the Ramones and stuff. He would hear me listening to Ramones records. I remember in particular, he loved Rocket to Russia. Really? And he said, well, you put that on tape for me. Yeah, he was a huge music fan. Oh, and dad, so yeah. he was like up for anything. That's yeah, awesome. I know, World's Greatest Dad. I mean, imagine a guy, you know, in 1977 who was in his like 30s or 40s listening to the Ramones. No. It's been quite a shock to the system. My dad, my dad thought he's, he's, Cheap Trick sounded like noise. <laughs> said, That's just noise. <laughs> yeah. Like, really? But, um... And by the way, you know, I said that I was in Boston for a particularly good time in music. The early to mid 80s in Atlanta, well, you probably know this, Rob, was like REM, the B-52s, Pylon, yes, Love right, Tractor. Right, yes. Great time for music. I went to one of REM's first shows really? at 688 in Atlanta, and Michael Stipe had such petrifying stage fright. Oh, he played the whole wow. show with his back to the audience. But anyway... Yeah, my dad loved this record, and we he would play this in the car, and we would laugh at our favorite. We'd sing along with our favorite parts. Oh, and, that's great. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I think it's there's also, oh, sorry, there's a line at the end of this that I also like. There's there's a couplet where it says, you know, our lieutenant has a handicap to cope with, sad to tell. He's from Georgia, and he doesn't speak the language very well. <laughs> as, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> as, as someone from Georgia, I particularly appreciated that. Now, uh, did you at one time have like a little, because I don't detect any, uh, you, you sound more like uh, you, you're from New England than you do from- Well, my the, dad was from Brooklyn via Norfolk, Virginia. Oh, okay. And then we spent a couple of years in Maryland when I was like six or seven years old and I think between that and ritualized hazing at the hands of my Tufts University classmates right. it probably beat the accent out of me Oh, okay. I can still do it though when I have to <laughs> <Can you? laughs> I think if we stayed on the call long enough Rob you'd hear it <laughs> <laughs> I do for sure. Um, all right, so uh, this is the other song. A little, I mean, it's fine. She's my girl. Yeah, a little. Not uh, my favorite. Well, yeah, and also he's like, you know, he's call, talking to girl. She may just be a slob, but to me, she's my girl. So it, it's not. <laughs> it's a parody of those, you know, of so many songs of the era, which were about, you know, even my funny Valentine is this kind of song. Oh, well, my yeah, funny Valentine right. is yeah, a song is. which is. says, you know, you're flawed, you don't have the perfect diction, you don't look so pretty, but you're my Valentine. The, That's right, sort and of this what is he's parodying. Even here. more of the extreme. That's true. exactly. All right, let's listen to a little bit of "She's My Girl." <laughs> Sharks gotta swim and bats gotta fly. I gotta love one woman till I die. To Ed or Dick or Bob, she may be just a slob, but to me, well, she's my girl. In winter, the bedroom is one large ice cube, and she squeezes the toothpaste from the middle of the tube. Her hairs in the sink have driven me to drink, but she's my girl. She's my girl. There is, there's something, she's you know, another thing that I think that you hear in that song, and you hear in a couple of these, is... And where I link this up to Woody Allen is the unlikely romantic hero. You know, you hear when he sings that, 
you know, he's trying to sort of be this kind of cool guy and he's singing like this. And, right. But right. he's a nerdy guy with glasses and kind of bro creamed hair. Right. And right, he's kind of right, right. satirizing himself as the romantic hero, which is, of course, what Woody Allen did as well. Yeah. And so I think that's another kind of connection point to me in this music, which is a guy who just, just, you know, let your freak flag fly. Be as weird as you can be. Right. And right. pretend you're the coolest. Right. And then maybe girls will like you. <laughs> Exactly. Right. Okay. And, Go ahead. <laughs> uh, all right. So the masochism tango. I can't even imagine how subversive this was in 1959, because it's basically like Venus and Furs by the Velvet Underground. Yes, it is exactly. It is exactly that. Shiny, shiny, shiny boots of leather. Whiplash, girl, child. Twenty years, what? Fifteen years before Venus and Furs, he right. was doing a song about masochism. Yeah, taste and, the whip, right? Uh, exactly. Uh, <laughs> and and actually, I would argue it's the lyrics are darker than Lou's lyrics. No question. <laughs> no right. question. Yeah. So it's yeah, it's, it's crazy that he did this. And uh, like you said, this this one also on a uh, Doctor Demento. This is a Doctor Demento thing because it's just yeah, uh, masoch. I mean, I don't know. At then, did you when you were a kid? Did you even know what that was yet? I had to look it up. I mean, it, it seemed up. like a funny idea. I yeah. mean, again, this this links up with the the glancing reference to Freud in that other song. Right, like, right, right. Like talking about psychological disorders was something that was kind of subversive and interesting in the 1950s. Right. And so to talk about a particular sexual quirk where you get off on pain. I don't know anybody else who was doing anything like this. Maybe, maybe Lenny Bruce. Maybe his comedy touched right, on right, these kind right. of things. But, but or you know, there was the Jules Pfeiffer. Remember the like catchphrase for Jules Pfeiffer, the cartoonist, was sick, sick, sick. And Lehrer oh, okay. always resisted being identified with that kind of sick humor because he did not think of himself that way. Right. What he did was just take a classic tango. He talks about it in one of the interviews. There was apparently a song called Kiss of Fire. I touch your lips and all at once the sparks go flying. Those devil lips that know so well the art of lying. And though I see the danger, still the flame grows higher. I know I must surrender to your kiss of fire. Which was this Argentinian tango, and it was about a woman whose kisses are aflame, and, you know, singe me with your kisses. And he thought, well, what if you take that to the logical extreme? And that's when he wrote the masochism tango. Ah, okay, okay. Yeah, that's great. That makes sense. But he does not hold back on the lyrics at all. No, not uh, at all. The masochism tango. For the touch of your lips, dear, but much more for the touch of your whips, dear. You can raise welts like nobody else as we dance to the masochism tango. Let our love 
be a flame, not an ember. Say it's me that you want to dismember. Blacken my eye, set fire to my tie as we dance to the masochism tango. At your command, before you here I stand, my heart is in my hand. Ugh. Yeah. You can raise welts like nobody else. <laughs> I mean, then, come on. Yeah, and at the end, it gets even darker. Your eyes cast a spell that bewitches. The last time I needed 20 stitches to <laughs> sew up the gash you made with your lash. As we <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty great. And, you know, this and they did actually an orchestral version of this song and Poisoning Pigeons in the Park with a, like a full orchestra. Oh, nice. With Tom singing. It was like a one-off single. And I guess they considered these to be the two kind of sickest and most provocative right, of the right, songs right. on the record. So they gave them a big radio push, which, of course, came to nothing. No one was going to play these songs on the radio. <laughs> so, you know what I was thinking? He was He's kind of like uh, the only like modern guy I could think of. Weird Al, like Weird Al, he a was kind of like yes, a Weird Al sure. of his time, right? Definitely, you know, and of course Weird Al, I mean, I remember hearing the first Weird Al songs, like uh, My Bologna, right? Also yeah, Dr. really Demento. smart, also really smart and really yeah. clever and good with words, maybe maybe dumber, maybe not as highbrow, a little lower brow. <laughs> and a little more into playing a rock star. See, the, yeah, the right, interesting right. thing is, it's an interesting thought experiment to think about, like, what if Tom Lehrer had kept performing? You know, Weird Al Yankovic is a fascinating story. This is a guy who has kept his career going for 40 years, doing basically the same shtick over and over again, and he loves being a rock star. Well, he does, Tom right. Lehrer had this really ambivalent relationship had no, He would have had no interest. He yeah. did this, he was done, yeah. He, he, it, it, it wouldn't have happened, and if it did, it probably it wouldn't have been good. It would have been weird, you know, yeah. So. Yeah, but the other thing is, the, the other principal difference between Tom Lehrer and Weird Al is that in every case you can recognize, almost every case, you can recognize the song that Weird Al is parodying. Right. You know, it, he's doing yeah, a send-up exactly. of Beat It, and it's called Eat It, right? Yep. These are original songs. Yep. Like, that is an original tango or an original folk song or an original jazz song that he's writing here. And you kind of take it for granted when you listen, but think about, I couldn't write a tango. I right, would not right, know where to right, begin. Yeah, right. So it's fascinating, like just how easily he moves between these musical modes. All right. So the last song in here, this is a really cool song. And yeah. it made me think, all right, this time he's, they're in like the shadow of the cold war. There's sure. nuclear annihilations there. Vietnam's about to start happening. So it's kind of like, uh, it, it's like darker. I mean, he, that's how he meant it. He meant it to be like a, like a, like a, you know, a, a hymn everyone could sing together, but also very dark, uh, and, and yeah. black and, humor. I mean, you're, you're pinpointing this song is released 14 years after the atom bomb is dropped on Hiroshima. Right. So the difference between where we are now and 2008, I mean, that's like 15 minutes ago. Yeah. Exactly, like, yeah. so the idea of nuclear annihilation and the cold war was very much something that was on people's minds. And I would imagine Lara as someone who had actually served in the army. It was even more acute for him. And so, you know, what he's talking about in this song is the idea of like, we're all going to be wiped out. 
Right. I, there will be nothing left. Yes. It will be the great equalizer. Exactly. And it won't matter who you are. There will be no survivors. And of course, it's the perfect final song for it an is. album it's a great, of satire. And, and like, also, just listen. I'm going to play it. Uh, everyone, listen to the first verses. The wordplay that he does is super sophisticated. Yes. He's playing with the phrasing to make the lyrics fit the cadence of yeah. it. And it's, it's beautiful. All right, let's listen to yeah. it. Uh, we will all go together when we go. When you attend a funeral, it is sad to think that sooner or later those you love will do the same for you. And you may have thought it tragic, not to mention other adjectives, to think of all the weeping they will do, but don't you worry. No more ashes, no more sackcloth, and an armband made of black cloth will someday never more adorn a sleeve. For if the bomb that drops on you gets your friends and neighbors too, there'll be nobody left behind to grieve, and we will all go together when we go. What a comforting fact that is to know. Universal bereavement, an inspiring achievement. Yes, we all will go together when we go. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's such a great song. And you know, I was looking to see if anyone's uh, covered it, and no one's. Why isn't anyone yeah. going to cover this? I don't know. It almost makes know. me it... want to start a band, another stupid band again, just to do a cover of it. <laughs> I'm not going to do it because I'd rather kill. At this point, I'd rather kill myself than be in another band. Right. But, but it's, it is it is a real earworm, like in spite of itself, like it's a great little sing-along. The, uh, yeah, you know, the, uh, the music is very good. Like I said, it's very sophisticated. And uh, yeah, it's just, it, it's And really you're pointing good. out once again, like just saying, you know, you may find it tragic, not to mention other adjectives. Tivs. Yeah. Like, he loves splitting <laughs> words in the middle like that. Yeah. You, when you attend a funeral, it's sad to think that sooner or later. Like, that's amazing. That's it's amazing. Clever. It's all, it's all so and, clever. You and know, well this done. reminds me a little bit of the song at the end of Life of Brian, Always Look on the Bright Side yes, of Life. Yes. Yes. Oh, you know, yeah. For it's sure. It's a perfect, sure. like, peppy sing along with an incredibly dark overlay in their right. case because they're nailed to crosses. And in this case, because he's talking about the annihilation of all life on earth. Yep. And and uh, this is the same thing. Like if you're into, if, if you like love Monty Python and stuff, you love this. It's, yeah. it's all kind of like the same thing. It's all grouped together in the same. Like I said, kind of like just wise ass, like uh, you know, humor that's like skewed. That's like you know, um, I don't know. People who just love sarcasm and who live to be sarcastic yeah. and just you know, and and just the the easy joke is is not good. It, it's like no fun, right. you know. The other thing that this song does is it sort of points forward. He only recorded one more album uh, called That Was The Week That Was, which was songs that he wrote for a political satire program called That Was The Week That Was. Oh, right, right. And right. and those songs are much more political. Yes. And it's interesting. He talks more about that's the you know National Brotherhood Week is on that album. There are songs about... There are more songs about nuclear annihilation and yes, about yeah, yeah, pollution and so forth. And I think you said earlier, like one of the reasons he kind of closed out his career is that he felt like the stuff wasn't funny anymore. Yeah. He didn't find the state of political debate funny. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting, as you said, to listen to a record like this at a time when comedy is sort of under interrogation. 
about what's funny and who's allowed to make certain kinds of jokes about certain kinds of subject matter. Right. It's interesting to listen to this record, which is 65 years old. Oh, so Jesus. isn't that insane? Yeah, it is 65 insane. years old. And think about, first of all, how, how current a lot of this stuff still seems. Right. Uh, the music, the music may sound antiquated. His vocal style may sound antiquated. This definitely doesn't sound like any other record you've covered on no. the podcast, <laughs> no. but I think the comedy is still pretty sterling. Like it still really holds it up. Is. He's it still is funny. Because good, like you said, something good, this well done is always going to hold up and it's always going to find new, uh, new people that love it. And yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you, uh, you changed gears and brought this in because you, yeah. you, you were the right person to bring a record like this in here. And uh, I think, uh, obviously I, I bet a lot of people are going to know this already and go, Oh my God, I love Tom Lehrer. But then some people will get turned onto it. But, uh, yeah, uh some people are going to hear the very beginning of this episode and go, uh, I yeah, don't know about this, Rob. <laughs> <It's okay. That's laughs> I mean, I stayed with you through the Catherine wheel, but uh, yeah, I don't know. There you go. <laughs> um, all right. So Jeff, it was like I said. I was excited to have you on, and uh, and and you you met all my expectations. Oh, thank you. Great I can't tell you. You know, I said this at the outset, maybe even before we started recording. It is intimidating to tackle something like this because Tom Lehrer, Charles Schultz, Woody Allen. These were among the most key comedic influences that made me want to be a comedy writer. Right. Uh, and so. Talking about it with you, I really appreciate the time and space to talk about something that's so titanically important to me. And yes, I would love to take you up on your invitation to do a real record next yeah, time. Yeah, real. <laughs> well, you know, just for a change of pace. Uh, yes. <laughs> all right. So don't forget, I'm going to send. So I dream of cameras. Uh, that's the podcast. If you're like I said, if you're into cameras, this is your podcast. Right. But you know, in the meantime, watch reruns of Friends, Will and Grace, Desperate Housewives, and Parent epi- Parenthood episodes that I worked on, and you will make me happy. Oh, that's okay. all I need. Really? That's <laughs> okay, it. Good. Okay. That's it. That's my contribution to American popular culture. Awesome. Uh, well, there's there's a lot worse that uh, that you could have done with that. So that's great. That's awesome. <laughs> Do you have anything else to plug? Anything else going on you want to send people to? I am uh, Blue Four Three Nine on Twitter. I'm S Jeff Greenstein on Instagram. I might be funny in one or both of those places. So if you enjoyed this, you might follow me there. Yes, you are <laughs> a, a good follow. I would say. I, I would agree. Thank good you, follow. Rob. And uh, sometimes I can be a good follow too on Instagram and Facebook. It's at that record got me high. Also that Facebook group got me high is fun. I make these d- uh, dumb little memes and every day I got to think, oh shit, I have to make another goddamn meme. Um, but whatever, it keeps me busy. Uh, Twitter, it's at TRGMH podcast. I don't know. What are your, what's your opinion on Twitter? I don't know about Twitter. I just can't. Uh, you know, I got on Twitter during the 2007 writer's strike and I found it very useful as a place to do sort of joke calisthenics. Oh, okay. You know, right. I would write jokes, you know, apropos of Tom Lehrer, uh, earlier this week, I wrote about a dozen parodies of the Dean Martin song, That's Amore. I saw that. Uh, yeah, that, that that's great. So and yeah, that's it was good. just joke workout. For yeah, a joke you know workout, it's that's good. Good. It's good not to be too precious. You can't be too precious about anything. You just right. uh, it's, it's like something you think, oh, okay, I'll just put it out there and that's it. You put it out there and then move yeah. on. Uh, that's move what on it's for. It's a garbage shoot. You just throw the stuff down the garbage chute. <laughs> that's go. it. All right, and don't forget, guys, if you want to become a patron of the show, like Jeff. That's how this is how Do we, it. Uh, this is how I met Jeff. Do it. Go to patreon.com forward slash TRGMH. Become a patron. You could uh, participate in the patron episodes. They're fun, right, Jeff? They're a lot of fun. I'm gonna, I oh, I can't stop doing them, Rob. They're <laughs> well, so much fun. Please don't stop. Because you're great at doing it. 
Uh, once again, it's great having you on. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks. Uh, next week, I think we're going to talk about a, a record, a regular music record, but who knows? We'll see. I don't even know what's next, but it'll be a lot of fun. Thanks again, Jeff. We'll see you guys next week. We are out of here. All right, Jeff. That was great. Rob. That was so